certainly we invite the Lord to speak to us once again. And what a joy, what a privilege it is, church, to gather week after week. And what a joy it is to open the Word of God with you and to read from His Word and invite Him to lead us. So let me invite you once again to open the Scriptures uh, with me today uh, to the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, as we continue uh, our message series this second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're in a series now uh, titled The Servant King. And ever since uh, Robert Greenleaf coined uh, the phrase servant leadership in 1970, it has been uh, considered a legitimate and acceptable and honorable uh, leadership style that uh, emphasizes selflessness and serving others. Uh, a participatory rather than authoritarian uh, style that seeks to invest in others over and above and beyond a pressure to achieve a, a quota or other bottom line. You know, leaders hold great power. Kings possess uh, great authority. Rarely do those who really rise to the top uh, hold on to and practice servant leadership. But the one who is at the very top, the one who holds the world in his hands, is the truest servant of all. As we look at the gospel once again today, the central message of God's word, the reason we gather, the center of our faith, we see that the king serves by suffering on the cross. The king, the king, the almighty one maker of heaven and earth, the sovereign one, the one who holds the world in his hands, this one serves by suffering on the cross. Let me invite you once again to look at the story with me, the story that unfolds in the text of God's word and to allow this shocking news to sink in once again. So as you find your place there in Mark's gospel, uh, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 8. Beginning in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your presence among us. Father, I pray that now your spirit would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would speak to us, that you would correct us, or that you would draw us to Jesus, that we might be faithful followers of him. And it's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, church, you may be seated. Here in this text, uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. The word Messiah uh, means anointed one, an anointed one sent from God. The uh, prophecies predict time and again that a Messiah would come, that a Savior would come, that he would be a deliverer, that he would be uh, a mighty one sent from God whose kingdom would have no end. According to God, the Messiah would be uh, a deliverer and a king. And so it 
is not all that surprising given that perspective, that prophecy, those prophecies and that background that the religious elite of Jesus' day as well as the general uh, Jewish populace uh, did not connect the dots between Jesus and the Messiah. For surely the Messiah would be a warrior, a political ruler. Yes, Jesus was, was different. He was able to do mighty things, perform great wonders. He taught with authority, but, but a warrior and a ruler. Uh, Jesus seems far from that. I don't know if you've ever heard someone uh, talk far before you uh, met them or saw their appearance, and when you finally met them, you realized that their voice just did not match their appearance. Ever uh, known anybody like that? It reminds me of uh, a well-known Christian author and radio broadcaster, a, a man named Steve Brown, uh, who has just this booming bass voice, like the deepest voice I've ever heard. His regular conversational voice sounds like the, uh, the, the thumping of an E string on a bass guitar. Uh, and, and so it's shocking to, to then see his picture and realize that he's uh, not this large, gruff, uh, intimidating-looking look, man. He's a small, uh, gentle, nice-looking man. And uh, similarly, uh, connecting Jesus with thoughts of the Messiah uh, must have created shockwaves in the minds of first-century Jews. For Jesus did not seem to come with great power and authority. He came in lowly, humble circumstances. And yet, even so, here Peter, speaking up for the group of disciples, gets it right. He says, you are the Messiah. And by not correcting him, Jesus is affirming his response. Jesus is the king. Church, Jesus is king. He is king. The Messiah was to be a king. A king whose kingdom would not end. And Jesus is that king. He is the eternal king. The one who rules over an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom has no end because his power has no end. His kingdom has no end and really his kingdom had no beginning. For he is the sovereign one. He is the son of God incarnate. The second person of the Trinity. One God taking on human flesh. This is the truth our our children learned this past week in Vacation Bible School. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Church, Jesus is king. He is supreme. He is sovereign. He rules over all. There is none like him. Every their kingdom, a ruler, or authority is subject to him. They are inferior to him. And as the king, he deserves our allegiance. So believers, let's bow before him. Let's bow before the king. Let's submit to him. Let's serve him. Let's worship him. Let's acknowledge his greatness. Let's recognize that He is worthy of our complete adoration, our sincere devotion, and our faithful allegiance. There is none like Him. Jesus is King. Well, here at this point in the story, at this point in 
Jesus' life and ministry, his disciples, these 12 men who have been invited by Jesus to come and to follow him and to learn from him are beginning to recognize who he is. They're excited. Yes, this is, this is good news. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who is promised. But as they recognize and as they hear Jesus unfold his mission, the purpose for which he came, their response to Jesus suddenly shifts. The story continues in verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, uh, a reference to himself, a reference to the Messiah, the Son of Man uh, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So here Jesus says, yes, you're right in declaring that I am the Messiah, but but I'm going to suffer. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer by going to the cross. The king serves by suffering on the cross. As I read and reread this text, it was a repeated word in verse 31 that, that jumped out at me in a way that it never has before, and that's the word must. Must. Jesus taught them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. That he must be killed and after three days rise. Again, church, according to Mark, according to the Scriptures... Jesus must suffer on the cross. Jesus must suffer on the cross. That is ludicrous, the disciples thought. The Messiah is supposed to be the hero, Savior, the one who comes to restore everything, to make everything right for God's people. And so Peter, representing the disciples, takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. He says, Jesus, you're mistaken. You're wrong here. You've misunderstood something. As the Messiah, you have a job to do. And it doesn't include suffering. You're called to eliminate evil and injustice and make everything right once again. You've got to figure this out. You you can't suffer and die. And Jesus responds and says, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must die. I have to die. Jesus had to suffer on the cross in order to to restore everything. In essence, Jesus says, if I don't suffer, if I don't die, the world will not be restored. You will remain hopeless in tragedy and turmoil, separated from God. Jesus had to suffer on the cross because God wants to give peace in life. Church, Jesus had to suffer because God wants to give peace and life. This is the God that we serve. This is the God of the Scriptures, a God who wants to give us peace with Him and life in Him. Now, I bet if we're all honest, we would all admit that sometimes this whole sin payment thing disturbs us a bit. Like a drill sergeant was strict rules, it seems sort of intolerant. This idea of God's wrath, His judgment, 
that sinners must be accountable. I mean, God, are we really that bad? Do you really have to make such a stink over our disobedience? And the short answer, according to the biblical witness concerning the character of God, is yes, He does. Because He is just, because He is holy, because He is perfect and righteous, because He is sinless and cannot tolerate sin. For this reason, one scholar, J.R. Packer, says this about the wrath, the judgment of God against sin. He says that it is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. A right and necessary reaction from a perfect God, a holy God, to objective moral evil. If we begin to let the truths of the Scriptures sink in, then the really shocking news is is God's gracious character and patience with us. Can you imagine this news headline slapped on the front of the Shelby County Reporter or the Birmingham News or the Fox uh, News or CNN? Uh, Breaking news, God receives His own wrath so we don't have to. God receives His own wrath, His own judgment, so we don't have to. Church, that's the gospel. God takes the penalty, the punishment for sin that we deserve so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be restored, so that we can be reconciled into right relationship with Him here and for all eternity. I think this is what Jesus has in mind when He responds to Peter in verse 33. He says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God. The concerns of God. This is what concerns God. This is what He's about. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 say it this way, For God was pleased. Church, God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. In other words, this was God's plan and it brings Him pleasure. It brings him joy. This delights God to carry out this plan that involves sending his one and only son. To take on human flesh, to live the perfect life, to fully obey uh, his law, his desire, so that he could then lay down his life so that he could shed his blood for our sins. These are the concerns of God. This is what pleases God. Tim Keller describes this as a personal necessity. A personal necessity for God because He longs to give us peace and life. And the only way that He could give us peace and life is through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus suffering and dying for us. But why the cross? Why suffering in this way? It's because sin requires the shedding of blood. Sin requires the shedding of But you see, every wrong that is ever committed must be paid for. Every wrong that's committed uh, creates a debt that must be paid uh, by someone. Keller describes this as the legal necessity. Let me give you an example to illustrate my point. If you're out driving one day and not paying attention and you run over and destroy my mailbox, I can respond in one of a couple ways. 
I could respond by saying, uh, by, by demanding that, that you pay for it, that you pay for it to be repaired or replaced. Or I could say, uh, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. But even if I respond that way, I'm still out of mailbox. I'm either out of mailbox or I've got to take on the responsibility and, and pay the price to have it replaced or repaired. You see, every wrong creates a debt that must be paid by someone. This is why forgiveness is such a big deal. Forgiveness involves a debt that must be paid, that must be absorbed. On some level, every time someone forgives, they experience a certain level of suffering. True forgiveness is is costly. It's a big deal. And when we begin to realize that, we can begin to understand Jesus' words. And he says to us, "I, I must suffer so that you can be forgiven. Either you pay the debt that you owe, or I will. And in Jesus, God says, I will. I will pay the debt. I will pay the price. Because I want to. Because I love you. Because I want to give you peace and life. See, in the scriptures, blood represents life. And we know that. that Without blood, we cease to live physically. Blood represents life. And the giving or the shedding of blood is... It's a great price to pay. The greatest gift that can be paid. And God is giving instructions in the law to His people regarding the sacrificial system, a temporary system that was meant to teach them about the need to atone for sin. He said this in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. He said, For the life of a creature is in the blood. The life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. In other words, this is in the blood that pays the price for wrong. The shedding of blood, that forgiveness is, is possible. Shedding of the giving of life is the greatest price that can be paid. Sin requires shedding of of blood, and so Jesus sheds his blood for us. He gives his life for us so that we can be restored, so that we can experience this peace and love that God desires to give us. And in this way, Jesus reveals the mercy of the King. He reveals the justice and the love of God. See his justice and his love. Church, see the justice and the love of God displayed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you see it? That Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the sovereign one, the only righteous one, the one who rules over all, becomes the greatest servant of all, giving his life on the cross for the sins of the world, paying the price for our disobedience out of love for us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. John writes, This is love. Not that we loved God. No, the way that we have regarded God is not, it's not love. 
It's rebellion. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It goes on to write, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See His justice and His love. The King serves by suffering on the cross. The Messiah, the promised one. It's anointed one from God who is a king, who is the king and our deliverer. This one suffers in our place. And then he calls us to follow in his way. He calls us to follow him. Following Jesus means going to the cross. Church, following Jesus means going to the cross. The story continues. The conversation continues. Verse 34 of Mark chapter 8. Then he called the crowd to him. Along with his disciples. And said whoever wants to be my disciple. Must deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me. And for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world. Yet forfeit their soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, uh, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. In other words, Jesus says that if you want to follow me, if you want to live for me, if you want to receive this gift, this greatest gift that I extend to you, then it's going to cost you something. Yes, I have paid the price, but this is costly discipleship. This is a life of surrender, a life of service, a life of running after Him, of losing yourself in Him. And just as many want to suppress the notion that sin must be paid for, Many also want to suppress the notion of a costly discipleship. A life of surrender, a life of sacrifice, a life of following Jesus. Yes, salvation is a a free gift by God's grace. Not something we can ever earn, but this is not easy believism. Certainly not an easy believism that perhaps accounts for the vast difference between percentage of professing Christians in our nation and the number of believers in in worship on any given Sunday. Perhaps helps explain the notion between a consistency of lifestyle between professing believers and unbelievers. Friends, this is costly discipleship. A life of surrender, a life of service, a life of following Jesus. Where we are no longer on the throne, where we are no longer determining our own worth, our own self Identity, but we are called to lose our identity in Him, to find our worth in Him. Jesus went to the cross for us, so let's keep our eyes on the King's cross. Let's keep our eyes on the King's cross. Jesus went to the cross so He could call us His own. Children of God. Saints of God. Disciples of Jesus. Chosen people. A royal priesthood. A great multitude. From every nation that no one can count. 
Let's keep our eyes on the King's cross. And then as we do, we'll learn what Jesus meant when he calls us to deny ourselves. Deny yourself. This is not the absence of self. But this is freedom to follow and enjoy him. Freedom to know and serve him. Freedom to enjoy communion with God for all of eternity. You see, Jesus is not uh, the means to an end. Jesus is the means and the end. In the gospel of Jesus, we get Jesus and life in him. We get to know him and to enjoy him, to live for him. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. My life is no longer all about me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. This is the difference between self-determination and self-achievement for the sake of determining our own identity and dependence upon, reliance upon, and joy in Christ. Do you have joy in Christ today? Do you know the grace of God displayed to the gospel of Jesus? You see, it'd be one thing if we were simply called to submit to and serve a king. Just a king. If that were the case, we, we probably would. You probably would. Because you have to. But not necessarily because you want to. But the gospel is more than that. Because in the gospel, we are called to serve the king who goes to the cross for us. The king who serves us by suffering on the cross for us. We are called to serve the king who who died for us. Serve the king who died for you. Church, serve the king who, who died for you. How could we not serve such a king who gave his life away for us? How could we not follow that kind of king? How could we not submit to and worship that kind of king? Are you serving the king? Have you surrendered to the king? The king who serves by suffering on the cross for us. Psalmist instructed us well in Psalm 100 verse 2 calling us to serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. In other words, if you know Him, you have reason, every reason to serve Him and to be glad about it. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. May that be true in our lives today and forevermore. Father, we thank You for the truths of your word. We thank you for the message of Christ. We thank you for the hope of salvation. Father, I pray that you would continually remind us today and tomorrow and in the days ahead of the joy of knowing and following Jesus, of the extent of love that you have shown us in the story of redemption. Lord, may it grip our lives today. May we respond with exuberant praise, with servant hearts, surrendering to you, running after Jesus now and forevermore. Lord, as we respond to these truths of your word, may you lead us, may you be glorified in us. And it's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things.
Amen.